0: This is the English
1: Heritage Podcast.
0: Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to the English Heritage Podcast every Thursday. Make sure to subscribe to get updates to your chosen device. And updates is a key theme of our discussion today as we look at some recent changes to one small but very special site to help tell its story to new generations of visitors. The place is Lindisfarne Priory on the island of Lindisfarne, also known as Holy Island. It's a place not only synonymous with one of England's most well-known saints, but also with perhaps the most stunning set of religious texts in English history. Yes, Holy Island is indeed awash with stories. And guiding us through them are our three
2: guests for today.
1: Hello, I'm Susan Harrison. I'm Collections Curator.
2: Hello, I'm Stephen Brindle. I'm a Senior properties Historian.
3: Hello, I'm Ruth Haycock, Interpretation Manager for the North. Let's set the
0: scene for people then, first of all. We'll bring in Stephen for this question first.
3: What is
2: Lindisfarne? What makes it so special? Lindisfarne, or Holy Island, is a small island just off the coast of Northumberland in the far northeast of England, about 10 miles south of on Tweed, so it's just in England. It is a tidal island, that is, there's a causeway which links it to the mainland, and so it's cut off from the mainland by the tide twice a day, and it is a magically beautiful place. The island is mostly fairly flat, it rises up into low hills on its north side, and the mainland is gently hilly and there's a crag. So there are features there, but it's a place where sort of the landscape resolves itself into fundamental elements of earth and sea and sky. And the sense of isolation, the sense that it is a place cut off by the tide, adds this magical quality.
0: Has the island then changed much over the centuries, bearing in mind rising sea levels today, for example? Do we know whether it was different in the past?
2: Historic maps suggest that it hasn't actually changed that much. The present causeway, which you drive over, is a relatively modern phenomenon, and prior to that, people had to walk, and there were routes across the sand marked with stakes where it was safe to walk at low tide. The natural environment hasn't changed much. The seabirds and the plant species, for which the is also famous, it's a triple SI, they haven't changed. And wonderfully, the landscape around it hasn't changed. You can see very little of the 20th or 21st centuries, either on Lindisfarne or in the views from it. So the island itself has changed remarkably little, and that's part of its its magic.
0: And you mentioned that magical aspect of the S.I. That's a site of special scientific interest, isn't it?
2: Yes, that's right.
0: Okay. And why is it scientifically interesting? Is it for, from a wildlife perspective?
2: Yes, it's as a habitat for both plant species, but in particular, as a habitat for seabirds, both sort of resident species and migratory species, so Lindisfarne it's very important in that point of view. And visitors to the island are really encouraged not to disturb the uh, the bird species, but to enjoy them in the wild.
0: I see. What about the changes to the way that the story of Lindisfarne Holy Island is told to visitors? We're obviously going to explain those changes as we progress through this podcast. But do these changes represent big changes, Ruth?
3: Well, the museum has undergone a really significant uh, transformation and we tell the story of the site from its foundation right through to its uh, continued relevance today. So the idea of journey is a consistent thread and has provided a narrative arc for the storytelling. So some people visit, visit the island for religious reasons and many might be on a pilgrimage But for others, there can be many other reasons. So that idea of connection to nature, exploring the island, it might be a family day out. So it's really about a journey through history that considers some of the key figures, the events that took place, and why the site remains important and relevant today. And we do this through many sort of fascinating collections which have been found on the island, and some of those from recent excavations, a new digital interactive for younger visitors, that explore the collections, and a family trail which has been inspired by the artistry of the Lindisfarne Gospels. So We commissioned artist and illustrator Olivia Lominek gill to create six bird and beast illustrations for us, for children to discover in the museum, and the poet Katrina Porteous to create a new poem. And then out on the Priory site, we now provide much more information about the Priory, its architecture and use by the religious community. And we provide bench seating in the outer court, which is a really reflective space that provides visual information about St Cuthbert's Way, one of the main pilgrim routes, and of course, the new monument to St Cuthbert as well.
0: What you're describing there is quite a big sort of shopping list of changes to the way that visitors will interact with the displays and the general location. So it sounds like quite a lot of work has gone into the
3: project. It has. The time that we had to develop the project has been relatively short and the team has worked consistently hard to tell the depth of story and create new experiences, you know, for visitors on site. So it's been a really sort of collective effort from everybody involved and hopefully visitors will now really enjoy that visit and understand much more about the history of the site.
0: Well, let's talk about that history now then and get into the historical context, which goes back centuries. For people who don't know, this small island has a big role in the story of Christianity in England, doesn't it, Stephen?
2: Yes, indeed it does, Charles. It's one of the places, probably the most important place, from where the Anglo-Saxon or Anglian people who lived in northern England were converted to Christianity in the 7th century in 635, King Oswald of Northumbria, who was himself already a Christian, asked the Irish-Celtic monastic community on the island of Iona to send him a monk, someone to come and preach the gospel and convert his people. And they sent a man called Aidan, who was regarded since as St. Aidan. And in 635, King Oswald Gave the island of Lindisfarne to Aden to be the scene of the setting of a community. And this probably in some way echoes or reflects the role that Iona had played, another island community, in spreading Christianity through um, the southwest of Scotland. And Aden established a community there which became the central Minster community, as we, we call them, uh, a community of monks and priests from where Northumbria was converted to Christianity. And so, although other parallel communities were founded at places like Hartlepool and Whitby, Holy Island or Lindisfarne was probably the most important one.
0: And there's also this other important person to talk about, who is this figure of St Cuthbert. Why is he important to the story of Lindisfarne?
2: Cuthbert was a young man who came from what's now the Scottish Borders area. He had a vision or a revelation what he was to do with his life as a teenager. He entered the monastery, which already existed at Melrose, and he became celebrated as a preacher, as a holy man. And in due course, he became the abbot, the leader of the community in Lindisfarne, and the bishop there. There's a tension in Cuthbert's life between his his manifest gifts, which led the rulers of Northumbria to make him their bishop and say, you know, you have a public figure, you have to be the leader of the church here, and his own desire, his passionate desire for a contemplative life, a life where he could be in touch with nature, because it's clear that Cuthbert had the deep connection to animals and wildlife. Cuthbert tried to to withdraw from his public role, but he was never fully able to. And when he died on Lindisfarne in 687, he was immediately recognised by the community there as a saint. And since then, uh, he's always been very important to the north of England. You might say that he's the north of England's principal patron saint. Is he actually buried on
0: Holy Island as well, Susan?
1: Well, in actual fact, he didn't live much of his life on Lindisfarne, the main island itself. He retired to his cell on Innerfarn, and he died there on the 20th of March in 687. But he was buried at Lindisfarne at that point. Eleven years later, in 698, his coffin was opened because the community there wanted to translate his remains. And they found his remains to be incorrupt, which increased his um, level of reverence, sanctity. And so a shrine to him was established. Ultimately, his remains in his coffin were carried from Holy Island when the majority of the monastic community left Lindisfarne in the later 9th century.
0: And why did they leave the island?
1: They left the island because there were continual Viking raids from the 8th century into the 9th century, and it is seen that their position was untenable to continue uh, as a full community there at that point, and they needed to preserve their relics, so they fled Holy Island.
0: Just to go back on one of the points you explained earlier, Inafarn is another sort of smaller island in this collection of islands just off the northeast coast there, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it makes the group uh, known as the Farne Islands. So yeah, Lindisfarne and the Inafarn Islands, yeah.
0: When you said his remains were incorrupt, I suppose basically it means that the remains haven't decayed in any way.
1: Exactly, yes. They were still in the state as though he looked as though he were just sleeping.
0: Wow, remarkable. So that, that, that's an interesting question, isn't it, about how that happened? I, I suppose people interpreted it as a, as a miracle.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and that increased his the reverence to Cuthbert and is why ultimately he was made into a saint.
0: So they take Cuthbert's remains off Lindisfarne to mitigate against these ongoing raids by the Vikings. Where do they go after that?
2: They're in Dublin Cathedral, Charles. The Holy Island community settled in Durham in 995 and between 1093 and 1140 they built an immense new magnificent Norman Cathedral, the present cathedral, a great masterpiece of Norman architecture, and they reburied his remains in a shrine behind the high altar. There we have the remains of the carved timber coffin that he was originally brought in, There's a gospel book and a number of other remains which are buried with him, and there are his bones because Cuthbert is one of the very few English saints whose remains survived the Reformation and they were reburied behind the high altar there, and there is a slab to mark the site. So the memory of Cuthbert is very strongly associated with Durham Cathedral and with the north of England, and he's still very much revered here.
0: I see. So he had his remains had turned to bones by the time they were translated to Durham Cathedral?
2: I would assume so, Charles. Interesting.
0: OK. Is there any kind of um, shrine, memorial to him where he originally lived, on Holy Island or on uh, Inner Farn? That's a question for uh, Ruth.
3: Well, as part of the new project, Charles, uh, we commissioned a new monument to mark the location of Cuthbert's original tomb. So Stephen sort of touched on, up until that point, there wasn't anything to identify Lindisfarne as the original burial place of the saint for nearly 500 years.
0: Going back all those centuries, of course, we have the story of the Lindisfarne Gospels, which we covered in episode 105. How do these fit into the story of the island? And for people who, haven't, who have never heard of them, what are the Lindisfarne Gospels,
1: Susan? So the Lindisfarne Gospels are a manuscript. They're a a handwritten book which tells stories of the life of Christ according to the Gospels of the Saints, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We understand that they were written on Lindisfarne, so that's their direct connection. They are one of the most spectacular manuscripts to survive from Anglo-Saxon England. They are beautifully written and illustrated. They're also very big. They have 518 pages and they're made of vellum or parchment, so from animal skin, and they measure over 34 centimetres in height. That's quite big
0: then. So just over a, a foot, maybe about 14 inches.
1: Yeah. So thinking about the scale of these and the amount of work that it took to make them.
0: Hmm. That's just looking at where i'm recording right now it's probably the uh, length of a keyboard i think a computer keyboard perhaps so um...
1: yeah or think of it as the size of a sheet of a4 paper mm. uh, but think of it as a huge wadge of that paper
0: yes and quite would it be quite thick uh, quite quite sort of textural with the uh, animal skin parchment
1: yeah yeah parchment is much thicker than paper so this is a hefty book in, in many senses, as well as that, it would be bound as well, which increases the thickness and the weight of it.
0: Quite heavy to lug around, I suppose, as well.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Interesting. So
0: I'm quite keen to pick up on that idea about the way that it survived. Is, is the choice of the writing surface the reason that these colours in the text and the illustrations and the text itself remain so vivid and so visible? Is it perhaps that animal hide is more durable as a writing surface?
1: It potentially could be more durable. It's more about the case of how it's been uh, looked after. So it's thought that it was probably taken off the island at the same time as the monastic community fled with Cuthbert's relics. And it certainly ended up for a period of its life at Durham Cathedral. And that's noted, I think, until about the 14th century. The book itself would have been often closed and it would have been well looked after. It was a very, very important, iconic feature, incredible importance. It would have been looked on with reverence, opened in awe when viewers saw it. Or subsequently, it survived because it ended up in a private book collector's collection and ultimately donated by cotton to the British Library collection.
0: I see. It does have very vivid graphics, doesn't it? And the text is still quite bold, even these many hundreds of years later.
1: It's in incredible condition. It's incredibly vibrant, incredibly complete, yes.
0: Wow, amazing. And it's just a single book, but with the individual Gospels as told in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, in, in that order.
2: Yeah. Is that right, Stephen? It's a great work of art the carpet pages and the initial pages are the most elaborate works of art, the most highly wrought works of art we have from a tradition of Anglo-Saxon art. And that although this art was manifested in stone carving and was probably manifested in textiles and wood carving, it probably reached its highest sophistication in manuscript. And the Gospels are really the pinnacle of a whole kind of art. And that's really why they're special more than for their content.
0: So this one for Susan, how vivid would you describe the Lindisfarne Gospels for people who can't see it at the moment because they might be driving their car or or whatever or out for a walk? How bold are these colours in this document?
1: The Gospels combine both written text and the most beautiful illustrations that vary from almost graphic design, geometric designs, through to portraiture. They are an incredible blossoming of the art of the period. They incorporate very many colours, they incorporate rare inks and paints such as indigo. They are blossoming of the culture at the time, and they're incredibly significant for the work of Anglo-Saxon England as we know it.
0: So it's almost like the um, early medieval version of 4K high-definition television, but basically with text.
1: Yeah. And the thing that really strikes you when you observe and look at the Gospels is the level of detail in them. They are so finely detailed. It's like the artist would have had to use magnifiers to enable him to produce the work. And it's written in Latin, is that right? It is, yes.
0: Hmm. This sounds like an incredible labour of love. How long did they take to create?
1: So estimates vary from 5 to 20 years. We know that they were written by one artist scribe. He was called Edfrith and he was a monk at Lindisfarne and he became a bishop there in 698 until his death in 722. So that gives us the parameters of the production date. It's generally said that the Gospels were produced around 700. But he's not the only person that was involved in the production of them. It's recorded in the manuscript at a later date that Ethelwold, who was also a bishop on Lindisfarne, bound and covered the volume, and that the anchorite Bilfrith made the ornaments for it. He jewelled the external cover. But the other thing to think about, really, is, is the entire community, because it's about being able to acquire all the materials been able to have the space to do the writing, to import some of the paints and the jewels and things like that. So although we talk about one artist scribe, it would probably have been a real community effort to produce this manuscript.
0: I can really see now how much importance people would have been placing on it at the time. And all the work that's gone into it, they must have just been so careful to look after it. Where are the Gospels today? Can we inspect them for ourselves
1: we can expect them for ourselves in some respects in that you can look online on the british library website turning the pages which enable you to see them in much of their glory but they're currently held in the british library and only a certain page is open at any one point
0: that makes sense but that's great that people can access them remotely that's really wonderful
1: yeah i recommend people do they're incredible Let's
0: move on to talk about some of the archaeology and the other history that uh, lies underneath the ground at Lindisfarne and the buildings as well that have been built over the centuries. Are there any Anglo-Saxon remains at Lindisfarne Priory from this period of when the monks would have been working on the Gospels, Susan?
1: There are no visible building remains of the Anglo-Saxon Monastery. But our evidence of the early monastery comes from written sources, for example, Bede, the 8th century monk who wrote the history of the English people, and in particular, archaeology, which over the last 200 or so years has revealed personal possessions, building remains, and decorated Anglo-Saxon stonework, such as high crosses, namestones, and our world-famous Viking raider stone.
0: Ah, Can you describe those three in a bit more detail, what they sort of look like and what they are?
1: Yeah, so high crosses. Think of very large stone crosses with a long vertical shaft, which is often decorated with interlaced patterns or animal patterns, rising into literally a cross shape at the top. And these can range in size from a couple of metres up to four or five metres tall. The Viking raider stone is probably a memorial stone. It's a round-headed grave marker, and it shows on one side seven raiders holding swords and axes aloft. And on the other side, it shows a central cross with two figures praying underneath it. And above in the top corners of the cross is a sun and a moon.
0: Do we know who might have created that? Would that have been the monks themselves uh, as a sort of way of making peace with these raids?
1: We assume it was members of the community that created these works of art. There are significant numbers of them. So there were skilled craftsmen amongst the community. And yes, the stonework is being produced for various reasons, but particularly for memorial purposes.
0: So to remember the victims of the Viking raid. So potentially the monks who might have been slain.
1: Not necessarily the victims of the monks. The the High Crosses would have been produced from the 8th century and into the 11th century, actually. And they would have been produced to memorialise any of the people that had died. And they might include the Kings of Bamburgh, which is nearby Lindisfarne, who effectively sponsored the monastery, through to members, esteemed members of the community who had lived there. Right. Well,
0: let's talk about the third one that you mentioned as well, Susan. Just tell us what that one was.
1: Uh, so that's the namestones. What, so what does that mean exactly? The namestones are a group of objects that are pretty unique to Lindisfarne. They are small stone slabs up to about 350 millimetres high, so up to the size of an A4 sheet of paper. And they are round-headed and they're inscribed and decorated. Effectively, they're memorial stones and they were used to identify the dead. Each stone bears a cross on it, which is intended as a perpetual protective sign for the body and soul who is awaiting resurrection at Judgment Day, according to Christian belief. There have actually been 23 of these discovered to date at Lindisfarne. And what's incredible about them is many of them bear the names of the deceased. And I find this fascinating because these are the names of the people involved in the monastic community who produced the Lindisfarne Gospels and perpetuated the cult of St Cuthbert.
0: Ah, very interesting. Do these namestones also reflect some of the um, graphic representations that we see in the Gospels as illustrations? They do.
1: Yeah, so the design of the name stone is very much like a manuscript page and even the script on them is similar to some of the script that we see in the Gospels. The names written on the stones are often written in two alphabets as well. Often at the top half of the stone they're written in runic letters which are made of straight lines and runic letters are said that they represent phonetic sounds. And underneath, they're inscribed in Latin letters, which is Latin that was absorbed by the Christian community, previously earlier inscribed by using runes. Additionally, the stones were probably all originally painted using the same colour palette as that that we see in the Gospels. So they were incredibly important objects.
0: So they, in their original time, would have appeared in a similar sort of bright way, To the Gospels? Yeah. Today we're just left with stone, bare stone.
1: Yes. There are still minute traces of paint on some of the surfaces, which gives us that glimpse into that world 1,300 years ago.
0: How were these stones discovered then? Did they come out of the ground or...?
1: So it goes to the story really of what happened to Lindisfarne after the community fled and the establishment of a new priory at Lindisfarne in the early 1100s. So the monks of Durham founded a new priory church at Lindisfarne at that point, and they really sought to establish their right to perpetuate Cuthbert's memory. And they reused fragments of the Anglo-Saxon stone sculpture that they found around the site in the walls and foundations of their new priory, effectively relics of the earlier foundation. And these are what we have found through archaeology throughout the last 200 years, and that's included an object such as a cross base, which is, would have held one of these stone crosses vertically. And this cross base dates from the 9th century, but it was found in the 1920s, having been broken in half and laid deliberately as a foundation stone under the crossing of the new church.
0: So that sounds very deliberate.
1: Absolutely deliberate, yes.
0: Okay, interesting. And and repurposing what previously existed. If a visitor is looking around Holy Island for the first time, what will they see and how should they interpret what they're seeing, Stephen?
2: Holy Island feels sort of like a destination, like the end of the road in a sort of romantic way. You drive across the causeway and there's the great flat expanses of sand and the sea in the far distance either side and you drive through the dunes and you park your car you walk down a lane and you get to a village, a village of mostly 18th century red sandstone cottages, though so it's on a much older site, and it's a beautiful place. You could imagine living there, and it is actually the home to a resident of community of over 100 people, and that actually is an important point about visiting Holy Island, that it is someone's home, and you, you need to, visitors need to respect that. And on the far side of the village green, there's a slightly larger red sandstone building, and that's our museum, and that's where you see some of the wonderful collections of Anglo-Saxon objects that Susan's been describing. And when you emerge from the museum, there's the place which is really the culmination of a visit, and that has two great historic monuments. There is a, a churchyard, which is still the village churchyard for Holy Island, with gravestones and trees, and there's a medieval parish church, which is the community's church, St. Mary to the right, a grey sandstone church, and on the left there is a great ruin of red sandstone, and that's Lindisfarne Priory. The priory is, we think, on the site of the ancient community, the community of Aidan and Cuthbert, but it isn't their building. What you see is a medieval 12th, 13th and 14th century complex of buildings which were built by Durham Cathedral Priory, and the monks of Durham, who were themselves the successors to the community of Aden and Cuthbert, they re-established a priory there, probably about the end of the 11th century and the 12th century, and they built a splendid church there, rather like a miniature version of the Great Cathedral, which they were building at the same time in Durham. So visitors need to understand that although this is the site of, or very near the site of Aden and Cuthbert's community, what they're seeing is like a monument, a memorial which was erected on the site, because of its great sanctity, because of the power of memory there, by the monks of Durham Cathedral that itself fell into ruin after the suppression of the monasteries in 1537.
0: The um, setting up of this monastery during that more middling medieval period, I suppose, from what the 11, tw- 1200s onwards?
2: Yeah, about 1100 to 1500. Okay. There, was a, there was a Benedictine priory there. Yes.
0: Now, was that a sort of Small size, given the size of the island.
2: Yes, as uh, as monastic communities go, it was a small one. In fact, it's probably misleading to think of it as a monastery, Charles. The community had moved to Durham, and by the 12th century, it was a large Benedictine monastery. Durham Cathedral was served by a monastery full of Benedictine monks, and it was that community which was very wealthy, very powerful, which refounded a church on Lindisfarne to commemorate Cuthbert's place of burial, and also probably to commemorate the Anglo-Saxon communities there more widely. But Cuthbert was what really mattered to them, because they had his remains in their shrine. It would have been quite a small community, so far as the monks were concerned. It didn't have a permanent community. Monks were sort of rotated through it. In fact, Arndt had a number of subsidiary houses, which were called cells of which the one on on holy island was one of the, the most important so a number of monks would have been sent there to maintain religious life on the site where cuthbert has been buried in this splendid church but actually the buildings which they established there were as much a sort of a centre of estate administration as anything else there was a large farmyard outside they would have run the island and perhaps some of the adjacent land on the mainland as a large farm, what's sometimes called a monastic Mm. grange. They would have welcomed visitors. They maintained a garrison. So although it was served by monks, Lindisfarne Priory wasn't a conventional monastery. It was a cell of Durham Cathedral Priory.
0: But all the while wrapped up in this very, I think, symbolic, vivid aspect where you're sort of leaving one realm and entering into another by virtue of this causeway. I suppose it's almost like going from earth to heaven, I
2: suppose. I think the island has long been a place of pilgrimage and its island situation, and the fact that you had to cross the sands would always have been an important component of that. Now, we drive across the causeway, which is a fairly dramatic experience because the causeway is just barely above the level of the sands, And of course, when the tide comes in, it's completely inundated. So that feels dramatic in itself. But that has only existed for maybe 100 years. Prior to that, people really had to walk, had to cross the sands on foot on a rather different route, which is marked out with wooden poles. And in fact, there's a refuge, like a sort of timber box, which rises out of the sands for people who are crossing the sands but are caught by the incoming tide and so the act of walking across the sands the island and back would be a very different kind of experience and quite a lot of people still walk over the sands to holy island maybe because they are viewing it in some way as a pilgrimage
0: fascinating i suspect that's got a real experience under underfoot as well perhaps they even go barefoot in the summer i don't know
2: i imagine some of them probably do charles yes
0: Let's talk about some of the archaeological finds that people can see in the museum that relate to this later monastic period on the island. Uh, What sort of things would uh, jump out at visitors, Susan?
1: Well, as well as the reused Anglo-Saxon stone that we've been able to display in the museum, visitors will be able to see objects relating to daily life of the community there, from the more mundane uh, ceramic cooking pots and serving jugs, right the way through to things like scales and coins and keys, which indicate levels of transactions, communication, security. But also we've got displays that relate to the even later history of the site, the post-monastic history, when the priory was used as a military storehouse for the garrison on Holy Island. And some of these items include things like a gaming board made out of stone, which would have been used for a card game, and gambling tokens. As well as, curiously, some of the earliest knitted garments surviving in Europe. Really? And how old are they? They date from around 1725 to 1750.
0: Right. What sort of garments?
1: One of them in particular is a waistcoat. But it's not a waistcoat as we'd think of it now. It's a sleeved waistcoat, and it's effectively it's an undergarment. The reason it survives is it was found in the late 19th century, along with a whole bundle of textiles stuffed down a crevice in part of the building remains, and it was either thought to have been used for hygiene purposes, and I'll let your mind go (laughs) there, or it was used as wadding for guns. But the reason um, knitting doesn't normally survive is knitting's generally a relatively new craft in the scheme of textile working. Weaving is more common and much older. But what happens with knitting is it was recycled because you unthread a garment and re-knit the wool. So it's incredibly unusual to have this remaining and it's been lovely to put it on display for the first time.
0: Is it sort of washed out greyish colour or something?
1: It is a very brown colour. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. It's yeah. We're actually doing some further analysis to see whether this was originally dyed or not as well. So currently, the samples are in Portugal, awaiting analysis.
0: That's fascinating. Ruth mentioned obviously earlier on in the discussion that many changes had been made to the visitor experience on Lindisfarne. Are there any brand new objects that perhaps visitors in the northeast region might have seen? previous years that they'll see brand new this time.
1: Yeah, so as well as the old favourites that are absolutely stunning artefacts that we've been able to put back on display, we've been fortunate enough to secure loans of some of the more recently excavated artefacts excavated over the last 10 years, which include an Anglo-Saxon blue glass gaming counter. It's a tiny little thing about just over the size of your thumbnail, And it's made of blue glass with white swirls in it and little white dots on top. And it's a king piece from a game of strategy called Taffel. And then another favourite of mine is a series of 12 salmon vertebrae. So the backbone of a salmon that were originally threaded and worn by somebody as a prayer beads, as a rosary in the 9th century.
0: What other things can visitors interact with to get fully immersed in the story? Ruth, what can you tell us about that?
3: Well, I think part of becoming immersed in the story is about that journey, which I'd mentioned earlier. It's something which is really important. People have to plan to get to the island because it's a tidal island. And so you kind of enter into that story as you're making that journey to the island itself. And Stephen had talked about the refuge box. There's a series of refuge boxes that you see, but that sort of leads me on to really two of the works that we'd commissioned. So for the museum, we worked with local poet, Katrina Porteous, and the other, we worked with artist and illustrator, Olivia Lominek Gill. And for a number of years, I'd been discussing various projects and ideas with Olivia and farm always came up in our conversations and it was Olivia that really introduced me to the work of Katrina Porteus. So Olivia had worked with Katrina previously. Olivia lived quite local to Linda's farm with her family for a number of years but has since relocated to France. so she's very familiar with with the area and the same goes for Katrina as well. And I was really taken by the refuge box audio poem written by Katrina. It had been commissioned for Between the Years on BBC Radio 3 in 2007. And the poem uses the wooden refuge box on Holy Island Causeway and the island itself to think about ideas of sanctuary and refuge. And in that poem, Katrina's words are inspired by voices of islanders, rescuers, and a West African refugee. And that's combined with... The wild voices of Lindisfarne's seals, the birds, and all of the elements—the wind and the and the sea. So Olivia had produced an etching of one of the refuge boxes a number of years after the poem had been written, and I'd seen this accompanied in Katrina's poem in print, and this was really the starting point for the development of the two commissions. So we worked with Katrina to produce an edit of the original Refuge Box poem, which. It's approximately 30 minutes in duration, but we've created um, an edited version for around about 15 minutes of that work. And in the museum, as a visitor, you would experience that within a dedicated area to listen to that. And that work is then shown in close proximity to a new work by Olivia Lominet-Gill. So Olivia's work is a, a mixed media piece, and it responds to the ideas that Katrina expresses in the Refuge Box poem. And Olivia spent a lot of time researching and talking to the island community and in particular the fishing community for which fishing is really an essential part of island life and in the piece Olivia has included the words of Katrina's poem and that's combined with layers of collaged imagery visual references to the island to the landmarks the shipwrecks the people and its history and they all make up one complete image and story So the two works consider the island's history, the events, the ways of life, and the concerns that people have, that all remain relevant today. The ideas around migration, climate change, and refuge. And these two works are really conversational pieces. And the way in which we've displayed those and presented those in the museum is that, as I've mentioned, they are shown in close proximity, so you can listen to and become immersed in Katrina's words whilst looking at Olivia's work on display as well.
0: I see. So um, you go across to one area of the museum and you put on some headphones, do you? And then you can sort of listen while you're looking at the images. Is that right?
3: No, it's it's meant to be more of a sort of communal experience, really, than a solitary experience. I think that's quite important to mention, so the visitor doesn't put on any headphones There are speakers built into a dedicated area in which you can listen to that poem. It's a very low-lit space, part of the museum. And then you can just take in really the visual works that are on display of which Olivia's is is one of those.
0: And these um, images, are they quite vivid like we would describe the Lindisfarne Gospels, for example? Are they full of colour and detail?
3: Certainly detailed, perhaps a slightly more kind of muted palette But you have figurative elements, so you have the people in there, you have the shipwrecks, but that is then combined with the sort of non-figurative elements. And we have the handwritten words of Katrina's poem, which have been written by Olivia on parchment. And then she uses other collage and paint overlaid to create one combined image and story.
0: And you've mentioned already the new St. Cuthbert's memorial, Is that outside of the museum space?
3: It is. That's something which visitors can see and experience within the Priory. And as we've mentioned, it was important to mark Cuthbert's original tomb and burial place. So for those visiting as part of a religious pilgrimage or otherwise, the new monument really marks that sort of end destination. Prior to this project, there wasn't anything there that marked that, that signified that. And that was just a really important aspect of this project. And the materials that the monument's been created from relate very much to place and references Durham Cathedral. So we have a basalt boulder, and that is then, it sits on a Swaledale limestone, but there is also inset into the boulder. We have a, a section of frostly marble and the Frostly marble references some of the columns that you would see in Durham Cathedral. And then we have Cuthbert's pectoral cross, which has been carved into the frostily marble, and that's been gilded.
0: Stephen, though, I gather there is this one aspect of the Anglo-Saxon past, which is visible in one object. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yes, indeed, Charles. It's called the Petting Stone. It's uh, a massive piece of stone, with a sort of hole of a socket cut into its upper surface that is midway between the parish church and the ruined Priory church in the churchyard there. Susan has talked about Anglo-Saxon high crosses, and to keep them stable, they were usually, we think, originally set into a cross space, which would be a, a massive stone to provide a, a stable base for it with a socket cut into the upper side. And it's thought that the petting stone was probably the base for one of those elaborately carved Anglo-Saxon crosses, though the cross itself has long disappeared. The stone is still there, and indeed it's quite probably the one object from the Anglo-Saxon past which is still visible on the site, because the buildings of the Anglo-Saxon monastery have have long gone, and the prior buildings that you see are from the 12th-15th centuries. And the petting stone, as it's become known, has become the subject of a Holy Island tradition whereby Holy Island brides are lifted over it on their wedding day, which is a living tradition. There was a a wedding on the island just a couple of years ago and the bride was indeed lifted over the petting stone. So it's a piece of the deep past that's still part of the the island's folklore and of island life still.
0: Like crossing the threshold or (laughs) Something like that, or or tying the knot,
2: that sort of image, I suppose. Making something official. Yes, making it official on Holy Island. Lovely.
0: So um, if people want to make an official visit, how can they visit the island? Um, Obviously, you've mentioned the tides before, Stephen.
2: Yes, that's probably the most important, because there is this unique issue to Holy Island that that it's tidal, Well, you can go on foot, or there's a bus service, or you can drive... But do consult the tide tables first and please take them seriously. The causeway is only just above the level of the sands. The sands are very, very level. And so when the tide comes in, it comes in very quickly. And each year people are stranded there on foot or in cars and, uh, and sometimes have to be rescued. So you check the tide tables and then there's a big visitor car park where visitors leave their cars and you walk down the lane into the village. Please do respect the privacy of the villagers, the villagers' homes, because remember, a lot of those houses you see in the village are someone's home. But then our museum is, we hope, a fitting culmination to a visit to Holy Island with the wonderful collections that Susan has talked about. And after those, you see the churchyard, the church, the priory to like the, the culmination of visit there. So it's a very special place. And because there are these restrictions... On it imposed by the tide, it feels much more like that, more like a destination place you need to make a special effort to get to, and we hope uh, hope a lot of people will.
0: Yes, and make sure you time your visit so that you're not stranded, I suppose.
2: (laughs) Um, Please don't.
0: Is there a hotel?
2: (laughs) Yes, there are, I think, a couple of residential hotels on the island. Of course, they're not particularly large, and there are really good pubs and cafes in the village, And they love receiving visitors. Okay,
0: that's good to know.
2: (laughs) Have a crab sandwich. Oh, yeah. They're marvellous.
0: Sounds nice. Okay. Mm. Um, If people are making a special trip up to the northeast of England, to Northumberland and to Holy Island, are there any other English heritage sites that they should drop in on as part of perhaps a, a mini tour? Who wants to answer first, Stephen?
2: Oh, shall we name one each? And I'll name Walkworth Castle a bit to the south because it's a fantastic medieval castle. Okay. Ruth?
3: I would recommend Belsay Hall Castle and Gardens. There's a major project underway to conserve and restore many aspects of the site, and that will be completed later this year. So that's a must, I think.
0: Okay. And Susan, which would be your favourite?
1: I would recommend going to Berwick-upon-Tweed and visiting Berwick Ramparts. So as Stephen said, it, Berwick's only 10 miles north of Lindisfarne, but it's got part of the defences, the coastal defences, which relate to that later history of Lindisfarne. And for me, it's a reminder of the importance of the sea, both for Lindisfarne and Berwick, as a means of transport and communication throughout the whole of history.
0: Lastly then, how would each of you sum up the importance of Lindisfarne, Holy Island, both in terms of its place within English Heritage's collection of historic sites of of more than 400, and within the story of England as well? Stephen, do you want to start us off with your thoughts?
2: Well, if I start off with landscape, Charles, because it's just a very special place, a remote tidal island where there's the sea and the sound of seabirds, and the experience of crossing the causeway and that sense of you come to the end of the road and then the sea beyond.
0: It's an idyllic spot, definitely. You can sort of really conjure up those images in your head and, and imagine yourself relaxing as soon as you get there, I think, engaging with this religious story. Susan, what are your thoughts about Lindisfarne's importance?
1: It's an internationally significant site in the history of Christianity. And for me, as curator, that's underpinned by the stones and the objects that visitors will find interpreted and displayed on site. There,
0: you're the interpretation manager, Ruth, so that means you're sort of in charge of the storytelling aspect, how these items are explained to visitors. Why is Lindisfarne important to you in your role?
3: For me, Lindisfarne is, you know, is a small site, but it has a huge story to tell, and I hope that you know through the new project. People will understand much more about its history, about its people and why the island continues to be so important to many people today.
0: And I'm sure lots of visitors will find that it's an important stop on their tour of North East England of of English heritage sites, perhaps if they're planning a trip. So um, it's really good to talk to you, all three of you about the story of Lindisfarne Holy Island and all the new things that can be discovered there as this new set of exhibits open. So thank you very much all for your time.
2: Thank you, Charles.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discuss two Iron Age queens, Boudica and Cartamandua, and their complex interactions with the Romans. Boudica and her husband are pro-Roman client rulers in East Anglia. So Boudica's story, as
1: best we know it, starts with a pro-Roman stance.
0: Thanks for listening.
2: See you next time.